Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind boggles. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash mtp, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to mtp, the number four, and the letter u.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. I'm here today with Rob Matskin, and uh, Rob is a serial entrepreneur, just like me, and he's co-founder and currently still works as a CEO of a company called MyQuest.co. And what's really interesting, also, Rob is uh, kind of having a business on the side, and he's coaching other entrepreneurs, um, and I'm reading from the website, to grow their business through innovation while generating power and momentum, but finding true balance and fulfillment. That's a big ticket. I'm really curious about that. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It is. Thanks for doing this, Rob. Welcome. My, my pleasure. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me. Happy to be here and uh, happy to be speaking with everybody today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it here myself. And, uh, you know, I'm just looking at uh, your website. I really like that that surfing picture. Um, <laughs> where was it taken? It looks really cool. Uh, thanks. Appreciate that. That's uh, actually El Salvador. El Tunco El Salvador, which stands for the pig. Uh, yeah. And yeah, in Did you have like a, you said like people set up on the on the beach to take these photos, or that looks uh, like a nice zoom, man. Yeah, so so that wave is one of the. It's a world class wave. It's uh, one of the most popular in the country. And there's some photographers at the beach, but that's taken by a guy named Rudy, uh, who's a friend of mine with a waterproof camera, who's sitting right at uh, right at the break zone. So he's like right there. So it's a cool shot and a cool sequence, actually. Ah, people really warned me about the surfing lifestyle. I had a couple of investors and I talked to them about, I'm moving to California. I was still in Europe and they said, uh, well, why are you suddenly so lazy? Um, so they, the only thing they associated with surfing, but it's not a big deal in Germany that it surfs, spots, but it's just too cold to really develop this as a sport <laughs> and the waves are weird. And everyone was really concerned that I'm, I'm suddenly just, you know, quitting entrepreneurship and um, become a surfer. Now, have you, you've been doing this for a while, it seems. I've surfed for about five, six years. Uh, I've lived in a few different places, and I've been fortunate enough to live to the, live on the water. And uh, you know, you wake up at the crack of dawn, get your surf in, and uh, and go to work. And I'll actually last year I worked a few times from El Salvador and got up at five a.m., surf for two hours, eat, and do a full day of work. So uh, it works out really well. Yeah, I think yeah. you you just spoiled the sport for me when you said five a.m. 
So <laughs> that's, you could do that's a sun, you could do a sunset. You could do a sunset surf. Some of the waves are terrible always at sunset. I realize that I've been um, Bali and um, I've been a lot of times to Bali. I love the beaches there on the west coast and uh, I love going out on the board. But everyone tells me you got to come back in the morning. I'm like, I, dude, I just can't do it. And they said, yeah, yeah, the waves are terrible now. You got to come at, at you know sunrise or just before that. I'm like, okay, this is not going to happen for me. So I, I, I admire that. I appreciate that. But you actually brought up something interesting when uh, your friend said moving to Cali, you'd be lazy. You know, I just moved to South Florida uh, from New York and I was living uh, in Israel before that. But uh, and I lived in other places. I actually lived in Vail before. But I think your environment and the people you have around you is so interesting and so important to really have that ecosystem to propel you as an entrepreneur to entrepreneur to succeed. Uh, well, also, you know, like New York, you could overwork yourself or burn yourself out. Uh, so choosing the right place, I think, is because uh, I, I go picking uh, picking Florida was an interesting thing because I was like, well, maybe I'll just go to El Salvador. And then I was like, what your friends thought was what I definitely would have turned into if I moved to El Salvador full time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah probably. They didn't know enough about Silicon Valley at the time, right? So that's not a place where you actually you go no. surfing, but it's it's there's too much going on. There's too much opportunity, at least there used to be. So you don't really make this a pastime. Um, how did you decide, you know, you just mentioned a couple of places where you spent quite some time. And um, mm-hmm. one of them is Israel I, I, that I've been, but I always wanted to stay longer and learn more about the language and learn about the history. Obviously, everyone is intrigued being in Israel for a while. Mm-hmm. How did you choose those places? They don't seem to, like my typical my typical pattern um, that I apply, what digital nomads choose, um, it, it doesn't really apply to Vail, Tel Aviv, um, and El Salvador. Yeah, I think I was a digital nomad before that was a thing. And I never looked at myself as a, a digital nomad. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm kind of I'm quite confused with the, the programs that you only stay a month in each place. I think that's great. And you could live and still be a tourist. But community is so important to me. And the people that I have around me are so important to me. And, you know, I, I studied abroad in Florence. And I didn't know any locals. I just knew a bunch of Americans. So I didn't really get the city. I got like this experience that wasn't authentic. It was just, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't as authentic as when I moved to Israel. What happened was I started, I was supposed to be there for four days. I, I, I met, I met some people uh, through, uh, I'm also an acrobat. So I met some people through acrobatics. I liked it. I met a girl. I stayed for another week. Uh, I stayed for another week. I met uh, I met a business partner. Uh, the story is much longer than this, and uh, I decided to stay and build a company called MyQuest, which I'm still working on five years later. And uh, you know, it was the right opportunity, the right time. And on top of that, it was uh, something I was really seeking, which was a, a purpose-driven company. Um, so Israel kind of called me, uh, and when I got there, Tel Aviv was the right city at the right time, living kind of next to the beach with a huge high tech scene, great weather. Um, yeah, it just really, really called me at that time. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel with you. I think Israel is one of those places. A lot of people maybe have the wrong um, expectation about it um, for, for, for many reasons. And then um, Tel Aviv is this, it, it's kind of like California, but it has more European feel to it. It's kind of, you know, I grew up in Germany, mm-hmm. so it has a lot of, things for better or worse that remind you of Germany. There's a lot of European culture and a lot of people actually 
uh, made it um, to to Israel um, after the Second World War. And the 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 only problem, obviously, that a lot of people have with going moving to Israel is how can you afford it, right? It's it's one of the most, and that was surprising to me, one of the most expensive places on the planet. Um, it, it beats out even Australia in its high time, and you know Australia has gone down a little, and the, the currency has changed a little bit. It's definitely gotten cheaper. Yeah. But I think this is what what um, what holds back, and probably the only thing in the region that holds back um, a ton of people that will move to Israel in a heartbeat, especially Tel Aviv. Yeah, so, you know, the dollar is actually, well, the dollar globally is pretty weak right now. At the time, it was a little bit stronger there. Um, you know, but as a local, Mike, in a local wage is certainly one of the top five most expensive, top 10 most expensive places to live in the world. Um, so, you know, I was fortunate enough that I, I was able to make it work. Um, but I was also coming from New York, so everything seemed cheap. You know, coming from Berlin where rent is uh six hundred dollars a month uh, versus New York where it's three grand. Uh, you know I mean six hundred is balling it in, in Berlin. At least it used to <laughs> I think it's changed. Uh, it's changed. Um it is definitely gentrified over there. Um you know what I'm I I wanna I wanna figure out um that's kind of a unique project you run before we go a little bit further into your into your venture. You coach other entrepreneurs, and um, I think the way, and you explained it to me beforehand, um, it's really about find, seeking balance and finding balance, and yeah. uh, you help other entrepreneurs do that. Um, the first question that I had is certainly, as an entrepreneur, shouldn't you be able to, like, I have high expectations of entrepreneurs, let's put it this way, shouldn't they be able to find that themselves? So my first question, and I know the, it's a lot of people have trouble with this, including myself. So we, we, we all struggle with this. And B, what what are kind of the values you, you you can teach people? Do they go through a seminar? Do you do you mentor them? Do you coach them? Is it like, and how long is that project typically? Is it a couple of years, a couple of months? Well, there's, I think, six questions there. So let me see if I can remember all <laughs> of them. Let me let, let you choose. <laughs> so I, I think the first thing, one of the things that made the most profound difference in, in my growth path was stopping this conversation that I needed to go through the school of hard knocks to learn things and learning things by, you know, osmosis. And I think, you know, finding true wisdom. Right. And I think finding true wisdom for me, and I think a lot of people have slightly different definitions from this, but the best definition of I've heard of wisdom is really learning from others' mistakes as if they're your own. Right. So if you could, you know, listen and acquire everybody else's mistakes and truly have them as your own mistakes um, and learn from those lessons, I think that is pure, infinite wisdom. And talk about a growth hack of how you can move quicker and, and move faster without, with a lot less friction. Um, I think w wisdom is that to me. So no, to your other question is, can entrepreneurs figure this out themselves? Well, I guess actually, yes, they can, but do you want to take years to do it or do you want to take days or weeks to do it? And, and we, we have such little time. I mean, this year, unfortunately, I've been reminded so many times over of friends passing in their 30s and their 40s, you know, that life's short, right? We don't have time to necessarily waste. And, you know, it, not to start throwing out uh, all these quotes, but I, I also live by this philosophy of live every day like you're going to die tomorrow, right? But I, I misinterpreted this quote for many years. I thought that meant, especially as an entrepreneur, I had to get everything done today because there is no tomorrow. 
But what it really means to me is I need to be complete with everybody in my life. So if I don't see them ever again, there's nothing there. And then you can be free and clear and move rapidly and, and not have uh, regrets, really. Um, so, so yeah, you, you know, back to the, the, the question of can people learn this on their own? Sure, but why, why go through it on your own? Uh, I think one of the most profound moments, uh, another profound moment, I should say, uh, there's a book called The Hard Things About Hard Things, right, by uh, Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz, right, which is one of the, the top VCs firm in the, in the country. But Ben's story is a lot even more impressive than that. Um, but he, he was talking, he's like, listen, you know, you're going through hell. You can't tell anyone how rough it is, how scary it is, how, you know, I'll have conversations and I'm like, yes, we're going to crush it. I'm worth like nine figures. This is an absolutely amazing. And I'm going to the next meeting. I'm like, how are we going to make payroll in 30 days? And we're so screwed. And it's like, we're done. We're shutting down. I, I'm going to be sleeping on my parents' couch. And you, you could go through that in a matter of 15 minutes, especially years ago. Right. So I think understand so for me hearing that come from such a successful entrepreneur like ben was talking about in the hard things and hard things he was really talking about this company called cloudinary and you know i just read amazon and bezos moving on and the head of cloud services taking over you know and cloud computing is the next thing ben almost lost everything because the cloud computing business in the dot-com bubble evaporated and it was nothing right and he reinvented and sold to hp but going through for like 1.5 billion, but going through these crazy journeys and realizing, hey, we're not alone. This happens to everyone was so profound for me. And I think early on, entrepreneurs don't necessarily know that, don't necessarily realize it. And having somebody that not only is an outside set of eyes to, to look in and, and ears to look in and see things that you can't necessarily see because you can't coach yourself. The greatest athletes in the world don't coach themselves. They have coaches. Um, but then also just really, um, having also somebody there with you that you could confide in and speak to about these crazy, scary things that you can't speak to investors about, that you can't speak to friends or family about. You can, but it's got to be a very special relationship that most people don't have. So that's kind of a lot of times where I come in as well, amongst other things. And that's just kind of more on the, the personal side of things, uh, not even necessarily the business performance side of things. Yeah, I think this is awesome. I I myself have struggled with this um, quite a bit, and I think you 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 hit the nail on the head there. It is the 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 emotional tax that you pay as an entrepreneur uh, between those ups and downs and the the uncertain uncertainty that strikes you, and you you are in the end. And this I I feel it's a little better if you have a bunch of co co-founders, if there are three. Um, of you, and they all, you know, they all come from different angles and viewpoints. And then I think this, it gets a little easier because you can kind of feel and you can share that a little bit. If you're the CEO, most of you, are, you don't have a lot of co-founders. You have a management board, but they are not at the same level and they don't have the same skin in the game. You're literally alone. And I think you're you're describing um, a big problem that that a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs, as, as younger they are, they don't really know about it. And they, they don't. I think they don't. They underestimate how tough that gets because um, that's that's Naval Naval Ravikant's quote. With this enormous amount of leverage that we have, um, 
the stakes are so much higher. Like literally you, you do the wrong thing. You put the wrong thing out on your social media as a CEO in Silicon Valley and you, you blow up a storm that basically you will never get funding again. Or it can be the other way around. It can be that tweet that everyone reads and suddenly you have five people calling you, do you want a serious seat tomorrow? So the, the, the stakes are very high and there aren't a lot of people that you can ask for advice because all these people that you pulled into your ecosystem, like a lot of family and friends are probably investors, right? They, you can't just talk to them because they can't understand the magnitude. Also because they're already investing, you can't go to them and say, well, you know, if you don't get another follow-up round, this whole thing is gone and all your money is gone. They, that will be very... It will be kind of embarrassing, even if this moment might come anyways, and they probably have a bit of an they 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 know this is this is could happen in their investment um with you as a as a founder so is that do you feel you can and you said that earlier you you want to avoid the mistakes that other people make the trouble is often that that our brain doesn't really work that way right so we 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 feel it's much harder to learn from abstract no, abstract knowledge. Do you feel you can, in these, these, these mentorships, when you hang out with entrepreneurs, do you think you can, I don't, do you go through like a list? Like, that's what I'm trying to say. Is it like a, like a canon? Is it like a Bible you go through? Or it's, you know, I'm going to help you with what I know. And if I don't know, then, you know, you, you don't pay me or you, you know, we're just going to have coffee. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I think my, my first parameter is and my rule of thumb is if I can't provide you 10x of uh, value and growth and revenue uh, on a month of what I charge, then I, I, I'm not going to be of, uh, of service, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I have about 26 different parameters that I kind of look to push on, right? Um, in, in, a few different, uh, in a few different themes. Uh, is really is really what I focused on. So th- there's two aspects, right? And what's I, I think if you've never gone through a, a coaching program, some of the things that you don't don't necessarily realize there's hey, I want to dump and I have a tremendous amount of wisdom that I want to share with you and I want to give to you, right? But a lot of times, especially the first month or two, I can't even get to that because we're putting out fires left and right, personal, professional interpersonal, right? You know, you talk about co-founders. First of all, I will never do a startup again on my, uh, alone, a, a startup, right? Uh, the coaching stuff, it, 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 it's my own, it's my own little baby, but I'll never do a, a, a hyper growth startup alone again, because uh, first of all, your ego gets in the way. It's always your baby. It's always about you, which, you know, the super hero syndrome is what I had 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but, when you when you have somebody, you know, one person's, you know, at some point we, we can't slam the gas pedal 100 percent of the time. We're going to back off to 90, or we need to take a breath, or it's the holidays. But you have another founder to push hard and collaborate with. Sometimes I, I've never had, no, I've had four co-founders. I like two or three co-founders. I think having a partner is uh, the most powerful, and then having somebody maybe who's uh, depending on the project, a technical role with a, a technical co-founder. Um, but having somebody to collaborate as a partnership versus a, a, a trio uh, to make decisions on, I, I find uh, really powerful. And by the way, one thing with uh, one thing that was always surprising me with co-founders is not all co-founders have to have the same amount of equity. Um, I, I, you know, I had this misconception that everybody had a third, a third, a third, or 50-50. Um, in fact, I... 
highly frown against advising that, that, you know, somebody should be 51, 49. Somebody's clearly the boss. Somebody clearly at the end of the day makes the decisions. Uh, even if you all share financially, basically essentially the same, uh, power-wise, somebody should always have be the clear executive, be the clear decision-maker, not a decision by committee. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I actually struggled with this in my first starter. It was the, the four of us. We all had the same share, and uh, there was no CEO. And uh, our investors didn't really care in the beginning, but... I think eventually everyone is like, so who, well, we talked to two of these guys and they gave us this picture that they're gonna, they are up to it, right? And then we talked to the other two and they don't even know about it. So there's a lot of things that happen in this marriage between four people, like four, four co-founders, um, that were really struck us by surprise simply because we didn't think it through. Um, so that's, um, I think this is golden advice right there. And then one other thing with co-founders is, and by the way, that would have been a great scenario if all you had the same amount of class uh, class A shares and class A shares were what where the uh, money was. And but board seats was specifically put towards one person, so that was clearly the that was clearly the chairman and, and CEO. So you all win if you all win, and you all lose if you all lose. But to Design, you know, decision by committee is death by committee in my mind. The other thing I've seen way too many startups fail before they even get started because there's not paperwork and proper paperwork, especially in the beginning, specifically and explicitly stating what happens when with the IP, with vesting structures and everything else with their attorney that's properly set up. So if a co-founder decides to leave and he's a CTO and he wants to take a 30% of his co- uh, the company's equity and you're three months in, well, the company's debt. It can't raise money, it's debt, right? Mm-hmm. So having that in place that he got nothing, unfortunately, but because it's the company's no one's, the company's is the investors, the company's its own entity. You guys are the, pa- the co-founders of the parents pumping their lifeblood into the company. It's not theirs, right? It, it's its own baby. And you need to treat it as uh, its own human, its own entity. So I think sorry. for a lot of people, yeah, I think for a lot of people, it's hard to distinguish, especially when they're younger. What is this that we just, you know, we hang out together and we work on this and we do this over the weekend? When the actual startup begins, right? So what is this phase of? We just play around, and I feel I had my first. My, I called it my first startup, but it was actually the fifteenth project or something. I mean, I went from making illuminated um, toothbrushes to, um, I don't even know, there was some, some live streaming we wanted to do back in the late 90s, which was really exciting at the time, very unheard of, not like today. We, there were thousands of ideas, let's put it this way. And, you know, ideas are cheap. Um, there's a lot of ideas out there. Um, and then eventually you figure out, and I think this was a really useful process, it, eventually we were, at some point we were 12 co-founders. It was a really big team. And um, we, we didn't consider ourselves co-founders or we, we were just, okay, we were hanging out and we were students in college and we were trying to, to experiment with things. And then we eventually trickled it down. A lot of people left, they had other shit going on and they just didn't care enough. What I felt, it was a great, a great year or two to really find out which people you can trust because you don't know, right? So you, you, it's not even, and I admire people who can do this, who literally can sit down, run through a couple of interviews and then say, Oh, you're the person who can lead this company for the next couple of years. I'm like, uh, what? It, it's got to be an actor, right? It's, it's because you don't know the intrinsic values. You don't know what someone can do um, 
positively or negatively. So I always felt having this runway of, of, of seeing how people behave in different scenarios, that gave me a unique insight. And that also helped us, right? Because a lot of us were just, we were not interested in it and we weren't ready for the challenge. We didn't want to work through the night. And I always feel it's hard at that point. When do you start formalizing this, right? A lot of people do it just before the first investment round. I, I would, uh, I'd frown upon that. I, if I, if it was all 12 of you, great. I would have had some sort of term sheet, piece of paperwork spelled out. You know, why do we create contracts, right? We create contracts because at some point a partnership's going to end and you want to spell it out while you're all still friends and amicable, right? Yeah. Not when it's not, because it's disastrous when it's not. Yeah. Um, and it'll implode the company. So there's never too soon to formalize to spend five, ten k on paperwork. Yeah, maybe right before, but to have something laid out, term sheet that's clear. Maybe it's not bulletproof if somebody really goes after you in court, but it, it's specified. Everybody understands it. There's a signature involved that hey, this is what it is. And then also just having vesting structures that you know maybe nobody. You know, in in that case, in, in, nobody vet, actually vests until such time as funding comes on board, right? And then, yeah. uh, and then a clock is a, a year vesting a year cliff, uh, and then with you know uh, a year cliff over a four year vest, which essentially means um, you know you 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 get let's say you have ten percent equity in a company, right? And I don't need to explain this to you, but you have ten percent equity in a company every year. You get two point five percent of that company of you working over a four-year period. That's what a, you know, a four-year vest is. Sure. It's 2.5% sure. of the year, right? Yeah. But a clip mm-hmm. will say that you don't get any equity until after year one. So I think that solves the, uh, that, that you know, I can't interview after three people and say you're going to be a co-founder. You need, a, you need to see you work for a while. And I, I don't want that exposure. I don't want somebody getting equity after month one. It's uh, especially the type of equity a co-founder gets. You need to... And they need to put the put their dues in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely good advice, and it 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 helps when you already have identified something. Um, and I think we 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 both see how this game works right now, but it's always evolving, right? So I, I, you have this case of the the Instagram founders who who literally work on the same app forever, uh, from what I know, right? I don't have I didn't have them on the podcast, but I want to. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the obvious issue is. You, you work on something that seems completely worthless and a lot of people are dropping out because nobody cares about this app, right? They developed this app and it was a, a bunch of uh, functionality that they had initially and, and it never took off and the team changed and then eventually it, it I think the, the original project shut down and they took what wasn't Instagram but became Instagram and just used the, used the photo filters and literally just had the photo stream. So something that before didn't really work in any kind of commercial project suddenly took off a year later and was worth $2 billion. And I think these, these enormous amount of scales and the, the, the differences, and I think this is how our brain works, right? it doesn't really think logarithmically. We, we have this relatively um, linear progression in our, in our lives, and then we feel like this is how it's going to be most of the time with the startup too, right? And then obviously we are shooting for the logarithmic explosion, but it happens relatively rarely, but when it happens, it's amazing. It, we, a, we don't really plan enough for it, but maybe we should. I mean, that's why I think your advice is so, so useful. Yeah, I, I think you have to plan. You have to plan for success, right? You have to. Uh, yeah. One of the things I, I was just saying last week is uh, <clears throat> do you know how long, uh, you know, for a skyscraper, right? Do you know how long it takes to 
to build the foundation? I don't know, two years, a long time. Yeah, a long time. It takes as long as it does to dig down as it does going up. So the higher yeah. and the longer it's going to take to go up, the more time it's going to take to build that foundation, right? Yeah. And it's like the same thing as like a, a Chinese bamboo tree, right? It won't grow for five years and you water it and you fertilize it, water it and fertilize it. And after year five, I think it grows like 90 feet or something uh, crazy, right? So it's like, yeah. but when's it actually growing? Right? Yeah. Is it growing year one or is it growing year five or is it growing the whole time, right? Yeah, with startups, I, you know, there's not just that. There's also the you bring a lot of outside experience and things that you don't you don't think you're going to use in your startup. You bring them in and you learn them on the way, right? That could be social media marketing or just skills that you pick up from them randomly. You never think make any difference to your startup or to your professional work in, in the first place. And then suddenly, that's what really you're you're the expert, so to speak, in a company. And then you get promoted, and then you use that leverage to bring the first investors in. Those are things you can't really plan, and you have to you have to plan them and hope that they're going to turn out that way. But you can't really plan them, right? And I find this, I mean, I find this an accelerating journey. I've done it um, almost a dozen times, all kinds of different um, configurations, and I've paid my dues. Um, I've paid for my mistakes. So maybe I, I wish I would have talked to you a couple of years ago um, if you already had that knowledge. So I, it's, it, it's maybe, maybe, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe I would have been in the same boat as you. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> this is why I do this thing. So I, I, yeah. I see this with my children. It's, there's one impulse. And that is to, to, they definitely are really curious, they're harvesting knowledge. That's what they do the whole day, right? But on the other hand, they also want to avoid learning things that are too abstract because I think their fear is that they learn stuff that is not relevant anymore. And so when I tell them something abstract and tell them about my own mistakes, they're like, mm, okay, it's just the Stone Age. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't have any relevance to them right now and they're, you know, in their, in their early teens. So things are still changing. But the, the finding, I think, and I think this is a real skill. If you find people who are curious enough and are able to learn from abstract mistakes from other people or, you know, written stuff, um, they, they learn philosophy, which is the same thing, or they learn about history, I think it's relatively rare. There is a lot of people who actually can do this or want to do this, let's put it this way, on a grander scale. No, and, and you're right. I think one of the things that got me to where I am and had, I have some really amazing people giving me advice and me, uh, I have two amazing humans giving me and my co-founder advice and they both have been wildly successful. One company, one, one of them sold this company to, uh, I think for nine figures, another person sold a company for 10 figures. So we absolutely dream amounts of success. Um, but the reason they continue to work with us, one is actually an investor, Another one just does it because he wants to is because we're coachable. We listen. We're thirsty. We want his advice. We respect him as his advice. And we're going to implement his advice, right? Because he actually has relevant, real experience that isn't abstract, right? And uh, and you have to want it. And I want it. I, I, I'm sick of I'm, I'm sick of beating myself up and running into brick walls at a thousand miles an hour. No, thank you. I don't recover like I used to. I'm not in my twenties anymore. <laughs> but then you figure out how to, to, how to do this without running into the brick walls. That's pretty cool. Um, I still do that. Um, tell I didn't me about say the, I never do it. I didn't say I never do it, but at least somebody said pick me up. I, okay. Uh, yeah, you, I mean, I feel like I slowed down in the last second. Maybe that's the only thing that saves me. Um, 
What is your current startup about? And I know it's about learning, um, and that's a, a topic I'm really, I really feel strongly about. Uh, tell us a little more about it. Yeah. So we've been around uh, six years now. Uh, it's called MindQuest, and really, what we're all, all, really, what we're up to is how do we really be effective when it comes to learning, especially in the digital world, especially in today's world, but most importantly. How do we really make sure we're, we're having that success, that knowledge retention, right? And how do we really build skills in today's environment? Um, you know, there's so much knowledge out there now with YouTube and Google. Um, if you're just going to watch something, if you're just going to get abstract knowledge and not actually be able to apply it, then it's very, there's a very low likelihood that you'll retain that information. So what we really focus on is how do we give our partners, our companies that we work with, we mainly these days work with large organizations. We also work with coaches like myself, but more business trainers and stuff like that as well who are going into organizations. And we give them all these tools, tactics, and techniques to really be successful in training and building skills inside of large organizations. So we're really a technology company. And just to spend one more second on to give you the philosophy behind it. If, um, you know, you have a traditional education where, again, you're just uh, getting information passively, but if you, the way we've been hardwired to learn for 10,000 years is learning by doing, is learning through our apprenticeship model. So we really give those digital tools to all our trainers and companies who want to have and make that difference um, and really train by doing so that's what yeah. we do. That's what we focus on. Are you involved in the actual generation of the knowledge, or you just basically have a technology platform that is then used by the actual domain expert to uh, to create courses? I assume that's what, what you call them, right? Or lessons, or series of lessons, or certificates? Well, we're called my quests, so we call them quests. Um, okay, like, fair enough. But, yeah, but, but a quest. What is, is like a course? Uh, I'm just yeah. thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's a course. Um, yeah, so we're industry agnostic. Um, we're contact agnostic. We have a team of people that coach our our partners to build up that content and help and support them to optimize things. But we're not content experts, and we, we don't sell content. We're a pure technology player. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How do you see, and I, I know the view from inside the enterprise is quite different, or maybe it isn't so different, but I imagine there is some wiggle room. How do you see the future of education? And I'm, I'm talking about um, K to five, um, um, but going on all the way to, you know, college level or so beyond college level. We 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 know that the the current structures institutions. Um, are definitely under a lot of pressure. We see, we saw this first with the colleges, and we saw what how much political games are being played under in in colleges. Um, we know, and I, I've 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 done this myself. I I had um, Paul Friedman on um, last week, who's an amazing professor of uh, history, um, the Middle Ages especially, and his course has been viewed a couple million times on YouTube, and the whole lecture is on YouTube. At least the the, the early part of that lecture, so fifty percent of what what he would teach in uh, I think it's a year or two. And I felt like I got a lot out of this. I didn't go to a seminar, right? I didn't apply it, but I feel I retained 60, 70%. Um, just facts, right? Those are this history. I didn't apply it. I didn't, I don't work with it every day. So I feel the, the colleges, uh, just, just hang on. I'm just wanted to paint the picture. Um, and then 
you, you, these institutions have been the first to see that the internet can basically disintermediate them uh, quite a bit just by having this content out there. And they, I mean, Professor Friedman still makes money from it, probably more than before. And uh, then it it went down to to. I feel it, it, it creeped down to a lower and lower level, and now it's probably at the level of middle school. It hasn't really reached elementary schools yet, where you have so much good content online, and then obviously you have to you need like a seminar level later on to probably actually apply it. But what do you think will happen to these institutions? Anything from middle school to colleges in the next twenty years? So I, I have to say I'm not a, I have strong opinions. I'm not an expert in uh, in K through twelve or that's what we want. These strong opinions. Yes. Um, but <laughs> in corporate education, I do have I, I do have some clout. Um, so I think you know there's a premise that I guess uh, I don't need to call the platform out, but that uh, the, the 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 MOOCs, the massive online open course. Uh, put out, you know, five, 10 years ago, that the more you democratize knowledge, the more you democratize learning, um, which is true. You know, everybody's learning from YouTube videos now. But LinkedIn has a study in 2019 that says that uh, 87% of learners will forget what they learned six weeks later across all training, right? Across yeah. all training, I don't, you know, and I'm sure that applies to, you know, a, you know any video that's ma- it was mainly done in the workforce, right? Um, Maybe there's something wrong with the videos. Yeah, it wasn't just videos. It was, it was just all training across the board. But you know, but yeah. uh, you know, and a lot of people. So I'm a big, I'm a very auditory person. Like I read twenty books a month. I actually listen, excuse me, on Audible, twenty book to twenty books a month or so. Um, last year I read two hundred forty books. The year before that I read, uh, listened to two hundred books. Before that. Uh, and I'm able to absorb and remember a tremendous amount of information. I don't absorb and remember everything. Um, but I, I, I don't think everybody's very auditory. I think it's from me pulling my friends and I'm saying, listen to a book. They, most people need to read it, feel it, touch it. Um, so, you know, I think the professors had a lot of success, but I don't think it's for any everybody. Um, but as far as, you know, higher education especially is going to – it's got its work cut out for, you know, you know, you saw court, uh, Columbia, excuse me, students go and protest and not pay tuition uh, just last week because they wanted a 10% discount. If it was me, I wanted, I would have wanted a 90% discount. I'm paying $200,000 for a higher education for what? For lectures that I could find on YouTube. And then you're going to tell me you spend $200,000 and it's worth it because the network I could build. And this year I can't even go to school and I can't even network. Yeah. You could do the same thing on LinkedIn, right? And it's free. Um, and you might have to put some time in. It might not be the same level, but you know you, you can get there. And um, no, I mean it's their parents' money. I think if it would be their money, like out of their pocket, and it would be no students' loan, student loans, that these tuition fees would be much lower already. I guess that's a highly leveraged industry. It is a highly leveraged industry, and they're selling. They are selling. They're not only selling, selling the connections that they can make, and their argument would be, "Well, we'll open all these doors." My friends who went back to their MBAs, you know, and they worked in finance. Um, they're like, "If we don't get into top twenty school, it's not even worth it because the top twenty school, yeah. top twenty business school. Besides that, it won't open up the doors in finance that they want to. They might as well just continue with their job." And they'll, you know, two hundred thousand dollars to make back. It could, you know. It could take you 10 years more. You might not pay that back. You might just be better off staying in your job. It's really, it's, there's a few career paths that you're really going to see 
20 plus K yearly return, right? On going to school. I'm so, fully with you. I, I don't see the return on, on, uh, on the high end. For most people, you know, there's always obviously, and the, the, what a lot of people don't really consider is they have the, uh, the ability to reject 99.9% of the applicants. So the, the, the people that you see who actually get into Harvard or get into Ivy League schools, those people might have been very successful without Harvard, right? So the, they, they have a very skewed selection in the first place, and this might be if they have a good read on talent, and I think after so many years they probably have. It's virtually guaranteed without teaching them anything that they will do very well because they were the best of the bunch anyways. And they know how to select talent, which is quite a skill. It's not an easy skill. And I think this is what employers pay them in the end. They don't actually pay. It's not, it's not that there's actual learning in there. Maybe there is or was. Um, I think this is, this is not existing in, in real life anymore. But it is this ability to select people. In a, in a really small group from a really large group, that's really tough for organizations. And you will never get fired for, for, for hiring a Harvard MBA or a Harvard lawyer, right? I mean, this, there's no risk to, uh, to an employer, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I've hired uh, Ivy League grads before, and I've had, mixed, I've had just as much uh, mixed success as I've had with any other population set <laughs> of hiring. Yeah. One of the interesting points, though, is... With hiring, I want to, you know, why do you go to school? Like, what what is the purpose of a university education? And these yeah. days, it's it's a lot of just, okay, so you could grow up. Well, go travel Europe, you know, go go uh, go travel, go grow. I don't necessarily believe that the higher education is going to make you a better or smarter individual. And you know, uh, maybe professors disagree with me. I, I don't know, but I want the scrappiest kid out there. I want the yeah. kid who knows how to learn and who's scrappy. I don't want the kid who goes to the best school. I want the, the scrappiest person in my mind, especially in a startup, especially in a high growth startup. I don't want somebody yeah. to put their, it's not a nine to five, you know, I want somebody. Yeah, to absolutely. It's, it's, you know, I, I, I say this a lot, a lot of times about my kids. I, I'd rather have them go for a year to Ethiopia and, you know, see the world in a very different light and see the challenges and then come back um, much less spoiled, so to speak. And, appreciate the the well I'm, I'm at odds with the school um and the way school works right now in this in this system of you know people sit at home kids sit at home with their ipads they literally what they get they don't even get like a, a lecture part from a teacher right that happens but it's it's really relatively rare compared to normal schooling and on the other hand they fill out forms which is basically a multiple choice so when when I think of what they do in their virtual part, and I think in school it's very similar, this is something where we feel like we we used to be 20 years ago. There is a part of knowledge that we look at. It can be a lecture on YouTube. That can be a book that we read. It can be all kinds of things. And then there is one set later on where we, we run basically run through an automated test. And, and it tells us, okay, we figured it out or not, right? And I remember studying for, for a GMAT, and it was just like that. There was a lesson part, and then there was a testing part. And then there was a lesson part, and the testing part eventually would improve. You could take it as many times as you want. And I feel like this, is, this, is, this seems to be all the answer that the schools have right now for, for having students study from home. And I even feel in school it's not any different. And if that's it, that's the big if question that I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, then, I mean, we don't need them at all. Like, for what? Yeah, but I, I think, you know, if you want to quote Simon Sinek, I think education's lost its why. Yeah. It's lost its why. It's like, why do we go to school? Well, 
because we need to pass the test and because we need to check the box and we need to look at, we need to keep project, like whatever it is, they're just so focused on making sure you could pass the test or so focused that they are, fo- that they are delivering you something and they have paperwork. So a lawyer can't come after them or you can't come after and say, look, we did this versus saying we need to educate. We need to grow. We need to develop. We need to deliver skills. Right? We didn't make that impact in that child's life, yeah. right? Um, and we need to make sure we get through it. But we get so, I mean, it's not an easy job being a teacher. I, my, one of my best friends is a, is a New York City school teacher and has taught eighth grade, eighth grade for the last 25 years. And it's exhausting. And it's, oh, it's rough. Yeah, it's, it's really not rough. Easy. In person, it's really rough. Virtual, I think, I'm not so sure if it's still a rough job, but it's not super pleasant either. I, I don't. I, I think it actually got harder. You know, you, you try, man. I, I, you, you try. I mean, I've been on conference calls with 10, 15 people, and they're all grown adults and trying to wrangle them. <laughs> it's hard enough. <laughs> yeah, sure. True enough. You, 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 you know, so um, there's systematic and systemic challenges that nobody has figured out. Nobody's necessarily addressing or asking. You know, the questions when it comes to business or education. We got to be asking the right questions and great questions. And if we're asking great questions, we could get great answers. But I don't even think everybody's asking the right questions. It's just like, how do we serve? It's pure survival this year. Not, I, I don't know why. We had three months to, to get ready. You, you knew this year was going to be 100% remote. Yeah. But listen, they didn't have. Nobody had it easy this year. I, I, I shouldn't knock it, and that, that's not fair. But what I can, yeah. I, what I can say that one of the things that you made me think of just with education in general, whether it's this year or the next five, 10 years, you know, I'm severely dyslexic, right? So if I didn't go to a particular school that broke down uh, reading phonetically for me, uh, I would never have been able to be where I am today. And um, it would have been extremely difficult. Um, And I was extremely blessed to have that. But, you know, having an education that resonated with me, the mainstream education, the way people are taught, today simply didn't work for me. Like I didn't read till I was 10 years old. Um, so it's just a, this interesting dynamic where it's not tough. It's not easy for anyone. It's tough for everyone, but, uh, well, well, there's a big, I don't want to diss on them. Right. But I, I want what I want to lay the groundwork on or the groundwork for is this massive amount of opportunity. So the first thing is we pay, um, in California about $12,000 per student per year. And that's, you know, from, from, from elementary school all the way to high school. And I know New York City is even higher, almost $20,000, insane amount of money. And you know, the prices in online learning, you, you, that's kind of going to an online university in Harvard, like the online university might charge you $500 a month or maybe a thousand and Harvard charges you what 20,000 15,000 so the the efficiency goes up it's sky high and what we could do also uh, if we if we have a proper online learning model if if we have that we also could customize it much more Um, you you, there's no need for everyone and then I know it was set up in in a different time but the model that we now have we want to do all the basics and you have like the most common knowledge, uh, the common sense by the time you're 18, but you have actually no common sense. Nobody has any common knowledge at that time. I mean, there's no life experience. You just know a bunch of random facts. So we just we just throw this all out of the board and say, and actually my children told me this. They said, why don't we do what we are interested in and we will go really deep into these topics. And with our teachers, with the guide, with the, guide, with the mentor, or with the, with the parents, 
and then these 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 puzzle pieces they eventually get stacked up, but they're much smaller, right? So we can go into um, not just arts, but you go into digital design, for instance, and you do this for five years, and then you go to the next challenge, which is history, and then you go from there to psychology. That's kind of how I learned, right? You you fall into these rabbit holes for a couple of years, investing or psychology, and then you go on because you know everything there is to know from your point of view. Maybe that's the model we should go for for for, for children and for I mean for employees too. I think it implies there too. So, you know, <laughs> quite a few thoughts on that. One, uh, one of my best friends in Israel, her daughter uh, goes to school that does just that. The kids yeah. choose what they want to do, choose what they're focused on, and choose where they want to spend their time. And they have very much like, uh, it's more like a PhD where they choose a subject and have uh, uh, somebody to oversee and make sure they're doing the work versus... Uh, yeah. Sit, sitting up in a, a course syllabus. Now, th- that could go sideways, I think, really quick, and you have to have the right children uh, doing that who really want to learn because you could, if that was me at 16, I would have gamed uh, the heck out of that system uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and used all my creative abilities to, 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 to game it. You know, but it's also, uh, in, I think, a wide breadth and a well-rounded education is also important at that age. I was just talking to... One of my really good friends, and she's a, a radiologist and very successful at the pinnacle of her career. And, you know, she goes, I was an idiot at 18. I didn't know what I was doing going into medicine. I was an idiot at 26 when I decided to go into radiology. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, and I'm, so for somebody at 14 to make that decision, and by the way, she's, she's great. She's successful. She loves what she does. But, you know, she made choices not necessarily knowing what she was getting into, uh, you know, 10 years later. So for a kid to choose what they're passionate about now is not necessarily going to be relevant, but it's all about learning and learning how to learn, I guess, at the end of the day. Right. It's not necessarily. Yeah. You know, you make, you make a very good point. Obviously kids try to game, will try to game the system, um, but they, they game the system right now too. And in the end, if, if people don't want to learn, if they just go through the, uh, the, the, the practice of, of being there, but they actually don't want to learn. I think it's, it's no use anyways, right? There's a ton of people, at least here in California, who are graduating from, from high school and they can't, they can, and they're, you know, they don't have like a specific problem, but their reading abilities is, is almost zero. Their writing abilities is almost zero. They don't know any math. And, and their texting ability is really, their, their texting ability is pretty good though. Their texting ability is good and they probably have 500,000 followers on YouTube. So, yeah. You know, it's it, the game has changed, and what I'm trying to say is there is opportunities for kids, but we do everything to like keep this bureaucracy in place, and I think these kids are going to be fine um, because if if you let them go and they find something they're passionate about and they want to learn, they take off. They're like you know, it's called investing in yourself. Suddenly, you become an entrepreneur responsible for your own outcome. Yeah, um, you know, Europeans I think do this very well. The European parents traditionally, and maybe you could talk about that. Uh, there's there's, there is, a, is there such a term in Germany for helicopter parents? Well, there's a term, but they definitely don't do this. But they're on the other hand of this. Yeah, All right. They say, you know, take these kids away and bring them back when they're 18. That's kind of the, the German model. It's a, it's a very uh, kibbutz-style model. Um, it's, it's different in the sense of they, they, don't, they don't see their children as an investment, right? They see children as other people's responsibility, and the children should better be behave and learn some 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 basics but beyond that they they feel like there isn't much you can do about children anyways they have to find their own path and if they don't you know there isn't little you there's very little you can do from the outside 
Um, and there's very there's less standardized tests. I mean, there is standardized tests, but they're on a smaller level, like on a on a, on a uh, state level or even smaller than that. So that makes it a little easier for the for the teachers also because they can say, well, we, we have a different plan, we teach you different things, and that's fine, right? In the U.S., that's often tricky because of the standardized tests. Yeah, no, I think standardized tests. I mean, they've gotten so hard, so rigorous, so that I guess a lot of teachers in a lot of districts are all they're doing is just from day one is prepping you for the test. Yes, 100%. Yes, absolutely. And nothing else worries them. They don't teach anything else. Yes, of course. Which is ridiculous in the sense, right? And, I mean, these change a little bit, but not much. It's like it's like Soviet Union took over our education system. So I, I want to shift the conversation slightly because I feel like we're unfairly ripping on the system with uh, being slightly <laughs> ignorant. Uh, okay. of, course. For, of course. At least are. for me. Because, uh, you know, listen, people that go into education... They are saints in my mind. They come with a tremendous amount of passion and they are only trying to do the best with the cards they're dealt. I think it's up to the leaders uh, in the community and the school districts and the school superintendents who are also just trying to do their best or most of the time teachers themselves. Um, but the biggest lesson that I've learned from corporate, from, from corporate America and from corporate education, doing what I've done is purely digital education isn't the holy grail. And purely in-person education, well, we're, we're talking about the challenges of that right now, whether it's 2021 or it was 2018. Um, but blended learning has always been what I've been a big proponent of, right? And what we've really focused on in my class, especially this year, is how does, and blended to me is live training, whether that's in person or whether that's uh, on Zoom. Uh, and, a, and a digital lesson component, um, <clears throat> something that you're doing in, in front and something that you're, you're taking home. And I think blending those two together and creating curriculum that is both collaborative from a peer, from a student and teacher perspective and a student to student perspective is, um, is so powerful. And, you know, when we look at the future uh, of what we're going to need in the, in the job world, and uh, th th we could go off topic real quick with this conversation, but when I look at the, the gender gap... There's no off topic here. Okay. So when I look at the ge gender gap, in, and everybody's talking about it, what 2019 was all about, I think it's really going to solve itself very rapidly um, in the next 10 years for, for really one reason and one reason only is, uh, and by the way, if I, I I'll, I'll probably step in, uh, step in it here uh, and probably won't be politically correct, but um, you know, female, I, I think females have naturally, and I don't necessarily understand why a much higher EQ than males. Me, I really had to work on my emotional intelligence for years to have any remote chance of having any. Um, and every girl I know was basically not born with it, but they had it by the time they were 10. Um, and I think the skills of tomorrow with automation and everything that's coming, it's not going to be about somebody physically doing their work. It's going to be managing teams. It's going to be managing systems and it's going to take EQ. It's not going to take, uh, IQ anymore. It's going to, how do you work with others? How do you work with peers? How do you work with systems? How do you manage projects? 
And those skill sets are going to be in super high demand. And it's going to go, and the, the best jobs are going to go to the people that could best fill those roles, um, which is going to naturally, you know, fill out those, the, the gender diversity gap. But going back to the education po- point is we need people collaborating, you know, hard. We need people understanding how to learn, how to find knowledge, how to collaborate, and, uh, and how to succeed together. Yeah. No, we, we, I, my model that I wanted to paint of the future <laughs> of school, we didn't really get there. I think the, I, I, the local, I, I, I completely distracted on that. I'm sorry. The, the local, the local corpor- collaboration, I think, is extremely important. And it's always going to be person to person. And uh, what I envision is, you know, for, for children is to have um, places where, where, and I think this exists in other countries very well, uh, where you, it might be on a per block basis or in New York City, it's maybe a couple of, of, of those where literally there's 5, 10, maybe 20, maybe 30 children. They all learn and they know each other, but they don't learn the same thing at the same time, right? There's not one teacher who teaches them. There's different um, online teachers, but they spend time in the breaks um, or after that in an after class. They spend time together and they get to know each other. I think this is this is really relevant. I think this cannot be replaced. And obviously, the the person who is who is overseeing this also has a role to play. So the teachers are not out of the picture. I'm not saying we, we don't need any one of them anymore. Just the model will change and it will become more local. And I think this is just the time, the, the choice of time. Um, but but I I I want to take your cue there, and I I feel like the 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 world will look different, and I I I think it's going to be interesting to see, and I I'm very surprised how people were able to to cloudify themselves. I call it cloudify themselves. So there's very little resistance against the restrictions that you had, like in the state of California against um, against COVID measurements. I feel they're they're overbearing. But on the other hand, there was very little resistance. And I think the reason is that people kind of want to modify and transport a part of their existence into the cloud. We've been doing this for a long time, right? We, we, we make video contents here, right? We, we have a, I have a podcast. And this is also something where, where, where people feel their job will change, but their job will more likely be in the cloud. And it will be once that happens, right? It will be... Maybe maybe that's just maybe the 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 options that you have as we know the internet right now that everything kind of behaves like the internet there will be way more options for anyone with a particular talent I think this this hasn't this is still going on this major drive unless we we, we face a a really a deep depression which doesn't look that way anymore I, I feel the specialization will go on and as you say people with higher AQ will will do very well. But so will people with high IQ. Literally, they only need to cram, cram out one product in their life, and that's going to give them revenue after revenue on a monthly basis from maybe it's, maybe it's a patent, maybe it's something on the App Store. Um, what I think we don't see anymore, but maybe I'm wrong, and I was wrong with that before, we won't see these big corporations. So the scale of the corporation, and there will be big corporations that, that produce the platforms, but... I'd say we either have these mega corporations or we have tons of people. I wouldn't use the word freelancers, but they can make a great living on their own, maybe more like an actor personality. I think that would be be my gut feeling how the future of work looks like. Um, so you think the future of work looks like everybody on their own and there's no, there's no large corporations? Well, there is a few really large one, right? Like it kind of looks like Silicon Valley, to be honest. Um, so you have these mega platforms that you know they 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 can just shut you off. Um, and there's Visa, obviously, and all these all these companies won't go anywhere, and there will be others joining them. But most of them, it will, will kind of look like 
you know, we all work for YouTube now, or we all work for Uber, or we all work for um, one of those platforms. And they give us opportunity, but it's, 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 you know, it's always like a Manchester opportunity, like a Manchester as, as a symbol for the 19th century, early industrial revolution. Um, it's kind of easier to make money, but it's kind of much harder. You have to have more and more skills and you have to try more things. So it's, there is entrepreneurship, but the gulf, at least, between these big corporations and the entrepreneur, it will be pretty wide. That might be fine, right? We all might have enough money. We don't have to worry about anything. But the middle corporation, I think, so anyone starting corporations with 50 to 1,000 employees, it's going to be tough, or it is already tough, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I, it, 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 it's super tough. I just had a buddy who uh, who went IPO uh, this past weekend. One of the things he always said, and he got to 3,000, he's at 3,000 employees now, and he goes, he's at 1,500 employees at the time. He goes, never gets easier. It's, yeah. it's always, it never gets easier. It's just the problem. He always usually comes to celebrate, right? Ian, you've made it, at least for a while, that was true. I'm not sure it is true anymore. Yeah. Yeah, you had to celebrate the wins. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I think, uh, unfortunately, the stats are that uh, entrepreneurship, small business ownership is down over time. Large companies, I mean, uh, Fang has eaten the world. I mean, the, you know, Facebook, uh, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, they're, 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 they're untouchable at this point. Microsoft, nobody talks about Microsoft, and it's the 800-pound gorilla inside of enterprises. Yeah. You know, um, it's not even part of the conversation, but it's it, 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 there's these tremendous corporations. I mean, we've seen GE go from one of the most powerful corporations to now they're, you know, if you look at their stock price, they're not doing so hot. But um, I mean, everything will rise and fall, but the, the, these guys are so big that uh, they're going to be hard to touch. Yeah, I mean, there is obviously, I mean, I'm, on one side, I'm really worried about that because part of why I'm really, Part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast is, is, is you know, keeping keeping that 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 sense of entrepreneurship alive, and it, I think it has been forgotten a little bit. But on the other hand, there is a lot of opportunity in this scenario, right? There is an opportunity. I think this is what we see um, more more from the left, and um, I'm, I haven't made up my mind there. And this is we talked about UBI briefly. If if we are able, and this is a big if, right? If we are able to finance. Um, $2,000 a month, $3,000 a month. Nobody knows what the right number is. So if it's much, might be much lower, or maybe UBI isn't the right thing. But just assume we 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 have the ability, and this people make these these comparisons with the industrial revolution, right? So we we had this. We worked in farming, and barely anyone had enough to eat. I mean, a bunch of people were well off, but mostly it was it was a struggle. And then the industrial revolution seemed to be not much better. We had to people had to go to a factory, but it, it, the, their productivity was so much higher, and in the end, it turned out well. We have like three percent employment now in, in in agriculture, and we have way too much food in the industrial nations, at least, and even everywhere else. We have plenty of food, at least, and, and as it's badly distributed. So maybe this is the point where we say, and again, this is a big if. I'm still making up my mind. Maybe this is the point where we see well. There is something that is kind of an evil big corporation, but on the other hand, it can be that that thing that feeds us, and we're still competing. I mean, it doesn't mean we are all just going to stay at home. Well, I mean, corporations that have to pay their fair share taxes first, uh, which is no easy game uh, either. But Google, uh, Google avoids all corporate corporate taxes easily. 
They paid so does Amazon. And so does yes. and, 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 and Apple doesn't even bring home any of the cash. Or, or maybe, they, maybe they found it, I'm sure. I haven't looked it up in a while. But, you know, they're not paying their fair share. But also, by the way, I think UBI is a billionaire's uh, escapism and the Valley's uh, escapism to say we don't have to worry about everybody and we don't have to give everybody a job because screw it. We'll just make sure they have the minimal amount. We'll put everybody in uh, on welfare. It's glorified welfare, and they don't. And nobody has to work, yeah. and nobody has to go to school. But it's like I don't. I, I think that turns into a very dystopian reality when you take away work. It's still, you know, working to just put food on your table and just to survive is extremely tough, and the fear, fear and everything else that comes with it is no easy story and completely alleviating that you know we're arguing so much about the 15 dollars minimum wage this week right in congress right but you know and to just take away that that level of poverty but ubi will also take away people's purpose and i think that's, that's something what is the question yeah yeah, I mean, the, the question is, how, do my, how much do we define ourselves through jobs? I know this is a big, this is a big argument. Yes, what, what, what would that be? And I don't think people would be out of job, right? They would just, um, they would have that, and we probably enter a lot of inflation. So it might not be what we think of 2000 today. Maybe it's 500 of what we think today. So there's a book, um, I got to look it up. There's a book that called, it's called Owl Economics. Uh, It's actually Bernie Sanders' economic advisor who actually gave Bernie a lot of his ideas. But basically it it talks about how, um, man, I should not be the one teaching this or explaining this. However, it, it talks about the way we understand and control inflation today is based on the unemployment number. So we're always going to have a certain amount of people or a certain subset uh, of people unemployed to control inflation. But there's other ways of handling it where you could give everybody a job, um, which is similar to universal basic income, and then use different parameters to control inflation. And the amount of money that we spend on debt, which will actually be tested now, with the amount of debt that we're taking on this year, um, when you have a truly sovereign, uh, when you have a truly uh, sovereign uh, currency like we do, we can take on more debt than we realize. But that's risky. Like you, it sounds like you lived through the crazy inflation of Germany uh, in the nineties. And I'm sure that's something that you wouldn't wish on anyone. Yeah. The nineties was, (laughs) it wasn't so bad. It was the twenties and thirties of Weimar Republic. And, um, that was, you know, my grandmother had like a billion dollar Deutschmarks for notes and everybody had one. Everyone was a billionaire for, for quite some time. And uh, I think they, they scaled up to trillions um, within a matter of a couple of years. And um, the, the idea was to basically not pay the reparations to a lot of those reparations were in, in gold and silver from the First World War. So it's kind of was a bogus story in the first place. And a lot of countries had that problem, um, that they go into crazy inflation. And I think we, we right now look into something similar in the U.S. Um, but the, the, the big thing, in a, because we are taking on so much that the, the big thing that nobody really can tell is what's the impact of technology? If technology, we're taking on this loan, basically, right? We're spending more than we can, but we're taking on this loan. The question is, if you take a lot of money, like you as an entrepreneur know very well, and put it into something productive, it's going to be very worthwhile, right? Everybody should do this. Everyone should be a little venture capitalist and, and wants to, right? We, uh, I had Diane Marble from um, 
from issuance.com. And you can, there's, startups can now crowd, crowdfund um, up to $100 million soon. It's not yet done, but it, Biden doesn't change his mind completely. It will be law very soon. And um, this is insane, right? So, so when, when, you, when you feel like, and I fully are um, behind that, when I, when I feel early stage investors um, should be citizens like you and me, it doesn't have to be um, Mr. Mr. Horowitz, um, if that happens and we all become investors into something good, let's put it this way, and we feel that's something good because we, that we made our mind about it, then this capital is well invested. But let's assume for a moment that all this debt that we're taking on will actually be productive. The question is if that's true. And technology will actually sprout so much and AI will, will triple our, our GDP. Then we're going to laugh at these, the debt that we took on and say, well, this was just a joke, right? That was, that was totally worth it. Kind of like what, what Mr. Horowitz does with most of his investments. Most of them fail, but one has to come through and easily pays back. Well, and, that, and that's the thing <coughs> with why, why, you know, what we're seeing in day trading today with Robinhood and what we're seeing... You know, there, there's a reason you should be using a professional investor because you can have a diversified portfolio, investment portfolio over the course of time. And it's risky to be in startups. And even the best of the best, you know, whether it's Horowitz or any of these super well-known funds, they're not making their money on 10 bets. They're making their money on one bet. And they're making their name on one bet. They're the Whoever invested in Teal, Facebook, right? You know, he is who he is because of a $500,000 check, right? And it's these one bets that, are, I mean, he is, a, he is a very incredible human being and has done a tremendous amount. But the, the name and the reputation, if he didn't make it there, he probably would have made it somewhere else. I'm not trying to take anything away from the man, but, you know, it's one bet. So for investors that I'm going to make five bets not really knowing the risk portfolio, it's, or an individual, it's... <sighs> I don't know. Even as somebody who knows the, the ecosystem, I find it very hard. And most people find it very hard to angel invest, even though, even though when they know what to look for, know and have a good thesis. So it's interesting. But I agree. It'd be nice that people could also it not be so such a a, a small niche of people benefiting from all these uh, all these profits. But by the way, to your point, I'm putting capital to work when you have huge megalith corporations hoarding a tremendous amount of cash, not putting it to work or, you know, the super wealthy and I'm talking billionaires plus a lot of their capital isn't necessarily always being put to work, especially not into entrepreneurship, especially not into specific projects. I don't know, you know, family offices actually now, I guess are getting into startup ecosystems, but you know, some of that money doesn't necessarily go back into the economy, which is the scary thing with all the wealth being controlled at the top. Yeah. That's why we have the Reddit army now that, that, that helps GameStop to bail them out. And I think, they, what was the other company they almost bailed out that kind of raised at the money um, when, when the stock was up? Yeah, AMC was, but it was a couple of months ago. It was another story like that. Chelsea, Ch Chesapeake? Chesapeake. I think it was Chesapeake. I don't actually know what they do. And Hertz. So there were a couple of companies who were, were, were really um, saved by the Reddit army. I find this a very interesting phenomenon. I'm trying to join the, the... I can't keep up with Reddit, but... Um, everybody has that problem, right? Everybody, And you never know which, which of these things will, will actually catch on. One thing, I think this is really relevant, and I think I, I ask this a lot of people, and I get really different um, reactions. 
Do you think we are in this big stagnation? You know, Peter Thiel's team that um, w w nothing really happened outside of the semiconductor and the financial industry since the 70s, or semiconductors, now the internet industry. Do you think that's true? And do you think we're going to break through this now or it's just going to keep going? Uh, you know, so I, I do agree with the thesis. Too many, too many of us have focused on making, doing marketing or sales or, you know, uh, we haven't done real innovation, like real invention. We've just iterated, I think, the last 20 years uh, in many ways. Um, you know, Facebook hasn't, you know, what has Facebook done? What has Netflix really? I mean, they've made our lives more convenient, but have they made society better? Right? Google, sure, Googling anything and having information at our fingertips, there's a, a huge thesis there. Uh, Amazon being able to get everything delivered, I love it. I'm a huge fan, but has it made us better? Um, so I, I, I kind of agree with that thesis. It's going to be, I think the next 10 years and the acceleration of the next 10 years are going to be. When you look at 5G and what it could do with wearables and connected devices, when you look at AI and what that could do across the board, across the industries, and when, you know, you used to need, well, what? You, need, you used to need a team of 100 people to develop a website. When AI, which is a year or two away, literally becomes the same as the equivalent of Shopify, right? And I could plug in any of my ideas into an, an, a narrow AI, Right, and what that allow me to do, and that already allows me to do, and when I can build products, is is highly fascinating. And then as AI expands, it gets uh, richer and richer over the next five to ten years. It's going to be very interesting. Um, and then what happens with like, you know, if if, it's, if the singularity is actually real, right, or if we actually become exactly. cyborgs and Or if CRISPR becomes real and we start manipulating our genes and everybody has a 300-point uh, IQ, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, what, are the, what, what does that look like? And that, that's what's actually scary to me is the singularity, right? Is where uh, you and me and us being humans and untouched, we're just monkeys and everybody else is, you know, is superhuman because they could think a million times faster than us and run circles around us. That's what's... It's a dystopian future too. So I don't know. It's uh, the next 10 years are going to be uh, as interesting as any. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I talked to David Orban, and he said that the, the day for the singularity has been moved upwards, so to speak, to 2038. It used to be 2045, and uh, they say they probably. Yeah, <laughs> well. I keep telling my kids this is the way to make money, right? So um, this this is the, the this Cambrian explosion in technology, and I, I see that all the um, that all the the pointers are still pointing towards it. And you, you would feel like we have a better idea now, but that's kind of the whole idea of the singularity, like that you don't have that it's you can't see inside it into it, and you don't really know what's coming. And um, I, the, by the way, I forgot I forgot quantum computing too. Yeah, yeah. See, um, but that's you know, China seems to be um, more ready than we are. But who knows who's going to win? I think there's so much potential, and all of these technologies. And we, I was I was chatting with David Orban about AGI. The literally, you just need one AGI to to change everyone's life in a heartbeat. It's like we all use Google, but this age we have an AGI for pretty much anything, and it's free, right? And we we through the internet, we can connect to that AGI. You. I mean, the, the amount of changes you can do if someone comes up with this, it might be China, it might be us, it might be someone in his basement. If the right person comes up with it. 
And someone. if they, yeah. if they, you don't want it to be someone, you don't want it to be someone because if it's someone, you know, how do you control this? Uh, EG, I but, mean, but, the, it's because it's a very scary thing. If you look at the great powers game and you look at what's going on out there, there are forces that, you know, Orwell's 1984 is child's play to what to what's being done and what's about to be done. If you watch Black, I mean, Black Mirror is a great example. You, do you ever see the Black Mirror episode of of yeah. uh, the social media score? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw them all. I, I love Black Mirror, but it, it, it's that, that's scary to me, and that's being that's happening in certain countries right now. That's not tomorrow. That's yeah. not so. That's reality, especially with COVID. It's it's literally happening, and. So what, but you're going to have, you know, once, you know, have as good a citizen you are and then you're going to have access to everything or not? But we already have that. I think this is. I think whoever created this meme, I feel like it's it's maybe QAnon or someone. We already have that. We have a, Americans have a credit score that actually didn't exist in Europe for the longest time. That's only one part. But it basically, if you defraud people, then your credit score your credit score is so bad you won't have one. Right? It will be I don't know a hundred. But you, but you could recover. You yeah. could recover your credit score. It's not. It's not that forever. But what if that's applied for everything? And it's like you curse, you curse somebody out, you honk at somebody, and all of a sudden, you have, the next time you rent a car, it's ten times higher. It already is. But think think about people in small communities. That's what they do in their mind, right? They run a social credit like a credit score on you, and they elect the one with the best as their local leader. I think this is. I mean, it is scary, but on the other hand, you also have to see you can with that data you can you can massage it, right? As an entrepreneur, there's a lot of opportunity in this. To, to help, and this is in the movie, right? That's where they they have people who improve your score. Well, well, so I want to point out, I want to highlight something that I think is actually profound of what we're talking about. I love speaking to people who weren't born in this country. The way you think, your German mindset and your German experiences are so different than mine. It's beautiful when we get together and actually collaborate. Do you, the, like I think it doesn't exist. And you're like, no, it already exists. It's here, here, and here. I'm like, all right, you, you, you convinced me. But it's like there's too much. Um, mo- 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 we, 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 we spend too much time being around people that think exactly like us. I think too much time. There's too much groupthink sometimes. Yeah, it's the echo chamber. But you know that can only be that must have been way worse. Like think about fifteen, twenty, or well, longer than that. Say fifty years ago, because you literally there was only one newspaper, and all the other information you had was coming from other people who you knew your whole life, who basically and they were kind of your friends or they were people you knew, so they had kind of the same opinion opinions as well as you most of the time. And certainly there was a few contrarians. So there was always room for that. I think it's only gotten better now. Right? I mean, YouTube can't shut down accounts quick enough. There's always someone who's going to come up and say, okay, this is how I see reality. And this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm after um, these same opinions here in this show. I see reality quite differently. And this is why you can't shut down the world. You can, I mean, there's no censorship in the world who can do that. There's always a VPN. There's always a hack. Um, and think about, and maybe you know a little about it. I'm, I'm trying to find someone who can fully explain me QAnon. But I watched this documentary and they said, it's 15 to 20 percent of the U.S. population who have some allegiance with QAnon. And like, for better or worse, they think this is something they want to know more about it, and they feel they—it's good stuff. Let's put it this way. And this is amazing, right? It's—it's it's something that the, the media hates. It's something that YouTube hates, and any social platform hates. Maybe for good reason, maybe not. I actually don't know enough, but it's spread like wildfire. There's always been a conspiracy, conspiracy theorist like thread in America. Um, you know, I mean, Area 51 is just one easy example. Of what, what wait, wait that's not real? Well, the, the, the base exists. Uh, you know, 
whether you believe or what, what, what they say is going on there or not, I'm not touching. Um, but, you know, so that's always been a threat in, 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 in our democracy. Um, I think what's scary is uh, people literally risking the, the republic um, to be right. I think that's, that's scary. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think from their point of view, it's the republic doesn't really exist anymore, right? So that's that would be their 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 response. They would say, "Well, we don't risk anything because it's gone already," and you can make that case, right? I think that's definitely a case to be made. And there's, but things are moving so quickly. Six months later, it could be we could have the republic back, so to speak, and where we we create a lot of damage. Um, but on the other hand, it's it's. I, I, I'm really curious what's going on in QAnon. A lot of people say that's the new religion, that's the new cult, what people will, will gravitate to. And it seemed to have already happened. I really don't know the numbers, if they are correct. You know, I, I, I mean, <clears throat> my dad's not a member of QAnon, not that I know of, um, but he's certainly conservative. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, talking to him about uh, politics is very challenging because, uh, again, he sees the world very, very differently than than I do. Um, and it's, uh, it's scary sometimes. Um, and it, but there's also a lack of listening uh, across the board. And I, I don't think anybody's, you know, it's QAnon or anything else, I don't think anybody's listening to each other anymore. Nobody wants to sit down and listen to each other anymore. Everybody just knows that they're right and everybody else must be wrong. Yeah, I mean, there is the sense of um, you just want to win. Um, you don't, you don't want to have necessarily, and I think this is partially social media, and partially it is, I don't know what happened to people's minds, maybe it's the education. They just want to win, right? They, they don't want to, nobody cares about what, how the world should look like. People care about winning a relatively short, short argument, a small argument. And I think it gives you a lot of, you know, it's emotionally, it's, it's great, but it's a weird it's a weird way for us to see that, right? We, 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 we still need like the aggregate and who, someone needs to do the aggregation and say, okay, this is all these small fights, but the big fight is actually quite different. And someone that used to be the media, but that's kind of gone now. No, it, 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 it is gone. And, you know, whether you believe a QAnon theory that it's, you know, Bill Gates and crazy forces behind everything. Or yeah, I, the I lizards. Know. I heard it's lizards. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I don't know what, but there are definitely forces at play, whether nefarious or coincidental, that are forcing us to argue about the things that really, in my mind and other people's matters, but like, okay, you know, could we move on? 60 years later from abortion, could we move on from gay rights and, you know, accept that this is people's right to, to choose their own pathway and not a place for the government? And, and, you know, people argue with that whole day and I'm stepping into deep water there anyway. But there's things that really matter to all our lives on a day-to-day -day basis that are our business, that, you know, huge forces that are coming to bear, like we were talking about 10 minutes ago with, you know, if the singularity is in, you know, uh, 2038, it's, it's going to be, if you thought COVID was a disruption, that's a, it's a whole another orders of magnitude different. And there's the great powers game again. And, you know, what that matters for the free world and for billions of people's lives. I think it's, uh, and I think the sad thing about 
the Republic, whether it's fall, some people say it's fallen, which is, I strongly believe it is not, but even risking the Republic has been, we're certainly not that, uh, that banner of freedom for the world. We've lost our inspiration, you know, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the rest of the world has to go through the exact same uh, path. And I, I, I just went to Bogota a couple of weeks ago and you, you can, you can feel and see people are like six or maybe six months, maybe 18 months, maybe two, maybe longer, um, behind the U S I think everyone has to rebuild the mental model of the world. And, uh, I, I think it's just a time of change, right? I think there's some a better alternative. The question, it's very hard to predict. It's almost almost like investing in, in dot-coms back in 2000. You know, I mean, all of us knew there was something to it, right? This was real. There was real economic growth or productivity growth. But selecting from, I don't know, 100 companies that were public on Nasdaq and were all dot-coms, that would be incredibly difficult. I couldn't have done it. I, I tried and I, I completely uh, Well, I mean, it's, it's the same thing with crypto right now. Right? I remember reading about Bitcoin when I was at 200 and I'm going, $200 and I'm going, shit, this is really interesting. And then I read like, well, the banks are going to get involved in it and there's going to be 2,000 of them and you'll know, never be able to pick the winner. And they're still right. You'll never be able to pick the winner. But the masses, the Reddit horde, and then the crypto horde, well, they pick Bitcoin. And yeah. <laughs> I, certainly, I certainly messed that one up at 200. Uh, but, you know, picking a winner, it's not exactly easy. It is hard. It's very hard. And, um, I mean, it's, even if you have domain expertise, there's a lot of factors outside that makes it very difficult to pick a winner um, that you just, you, you can't predict. It just happened to, to, to kind of sneak in your equation. And I think that what you just said is it's very useful. I feel EQ is much more... It maybe has always been true, but EQ seems to be the more determining factor now for 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 investing, at least for public markets. Uh, figuring out where the crowd goes is so much more important, um, and, and this might only be a week than knowing what is a good investment on a like in the intellectual basis. Maybe it's always been that way, but that seems to have it has turned quite a bit. I, you know, I, it's funny. Like I think the whole world woke up in the last month and said, like I woke up when I saw. Uh, Bitcoin get to 40, 40k and like I was very <laughs> I had a lot of emotions and uh, to say that hopefully least, you have a lot of money in Bitcoin yeah I, I didn't have any money in Bitcoin my friends were like we're throwing a freaking party you're gonna come celebrate this is like fuck you smoke bitches uh, I'm like I, I was very jealous and then I was like you know what I missed that why did I miss it because I was in Asia <clears throat> I was smarter and I knew. Then in the long run, my thesis, I knew that uh, Bitcoin wasn't a winner. And it yeah. might be, it might not be, uh, who knows, we'll, that, there, that thesis will pay, play out. Same thing with GameStop, but you know, the fact of the matter is the horde's going for it. And there's a, mid, there's a middle ground there where you can still ride that wave. Now, knowing when to get off it and you know, timing the market, well, that's been proven time and time again over the last 500 years of markets you know, since since the Dutch in the 1600s had their first crash, that timing the market is not a sound investment strategy. But you uh, you miss 100 percent of the shots that you don't take as well. And I've been sitting on the sidelines a little bit too much with uh, trying to overthink some of these theses. I didn't ride the GameStop wave or the AMC wave. I just didn't didn't know what the yeah. hell was going on. I just I, I stayed I stayed as far away from that as I could. <laughs> yeah. as I could. A lot of people had figured it out a couple of days earlier. Um, I, I read Zero Hedge, um, only for the financial news. Um, 
Anyways, but they have, um, they figured this out a couple of days before it actually exploded. Um, it was still, you know, they probably made the 3x or 5x on what they recommended. But um, they, they, and I think a lot of hedge funds also went in. That's why it exploded so much. It really exploded um, because it, it became a bigger audience besides Reddit. And then eventually on Monday, that was all over. Um, but, but Zero Hedge is kind of the only place that I read where I feel like you're a little bit ahead of the crowd. Maybe it's just 24 hours. Um, but uh, they've been writing a lot about uh, a couple of COVID things. But, the, you know, I think that's all you need. You know, and that's yeah. that the other thing. There's the other takeaway I learned this, this year with COVID was to trust my gut. I was like, you know, my parents were like, how'd you know it was coming? I'm like, mom, all I was doing was reading the news out of China. Like, you know, yeah. by March 1, it was inevitable it was going to come here. Um, I think we could have done a lot to, to, to stop it, but I knew what moves I should have made. I was like fearful. So I didn't, yeah. um, but I didn't trust my gut and didn't, didn't take those actions. And maybe that will burn me in the future. I don't know, but the, you know, trusting, I think yeah, I learned how to trust my gut this year and take actions on, on things. And uh, what did I hear six months ago? If I think of taking an action on something, I give myself five seconds to do it. And if I don't, okay. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent bought in on it, but if I, if I want to make it happen, I need to, I need to do it then. Cause if I say I'm going to do it one day, someday it's not going to happen. That's tough. I mean, I don't know if we be, you know, the, the, the social media talks to our limbic brain. I think what, what you just said, the gut feelings are kind of a limbic brain. Maybe there is a lot, maybe that's not like emotionally driven, just it's, there's something our unconscious talks to us. And I think there's a lot of knowledge to it. But if I say I would have done everything right away um, in like a few seconds, what my God told me, I don't know. It's hard to say. Maybe, maybe actually I would, things would have played out quite differently. That's, that's an interesting thought actually. Yeah. I mean, so, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it goes into like, uh, do you know Eckhart Tolle? Um, is it the one with the, is it the one with the pyramids? No. No, Eckhart Tolle's uh, book, The Power of Now, and, you know, no. the whole book breaks down to is that uh, life only exists now and now and now and now. And what, what now is, 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 you know, is our subconscious is, is here. And if we're, if we're thinking, we're, we're either worrying about the future or worrying about the past. Right. And we're yeah. not actually in, in, in that present moment. But, you know, if you inherently think of something, and take that action that that's probably you not your mind kind of over overworking it or without getting uh getting too far down that that, that rabbit hole but i think uh if you know something to be true and you have a gut instinct for it especially as entrepreneurs i think a lot of times that initial instinct is true have you, have you ever thought where this comes from so you know is that like a different part of the brain or do you feel that's there's something like a neocortex that can't react to it yet, or uh, like but Jordan Peterson was saying that what, what he finds really interesting when he sees patients at, and, and I, 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 I've been in hospitals too, in a mental hospital, I worked there, and I feel nobody really knows where these thoughts sometimes come from, right? I don't know where my thoughts come from, and a lot of people that, <laughs> that I took care of there in the hospital, they definitely had no idea where these thoughts came from, and I don't know if that's the unconscious or if that's uh, somewhat conscious. Have you thought about that? a lot um, and I am not nearly uh, qualified to answer those questions but what I what I can say is my, my work that I've done in like transformative education um, 
where, you know, what's, how do you, what's the quickest way of getting admitted, admitted into that mental hospital is talking to yourself, right? And having conversations, right? But, you know, you're talking about, well, where do those ideas come from? Well, maybe you talk in yourself. So, <laughs> you know, so it, 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 it's interesting. I think in the transformative education world, it would be described um, that this is a computer, this is hardware that's meant to kind of think and meant to control uh, and define our ego and our identity um, to really protect ourselves. We're always kind of blocking ourselves and protecting ourselves from some fear or something to coming to really, again, to, I'll leave it at that, to really protect ourselves from, from some sort of fear or anxiety, right? So that's why we're worrying about the past or worrying about what could happen in the future. And that's yeah. kind of what our mind is. And then there's that other thing, and I don't know where this comes from. I don't know if it's hardwired or, it, you know, a lot of people talk about you know, your micro gut biome and it being connected to your mood and everything else. But there's a moment where you do have those spontaneous thoughts and they are, sometimes it's brainstorming, but you do have those epiphanies that come to you. I don't know how or where or why, uh, and I don't know the science behind it, but those guttural instincts, I think, are the truest thoughts that we'll we'll have before you kind of work through it in your own head because then you'll distort it, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if, if you can can help people you know, get more of those serendipitous um, or, or insights, sudden insights, you know, a light bulb goes off. If, that would be a trillion dollar idea. But so, by the way, that is, so <clears throat> that is, I don't want to say that is what I coach on because that'd be arrogant, but that is the world of transformative education. That is, okay. that is landmark education. That is Tony Robbins. That is the Jim Rohn. That, that is, there's a tremendous amount of world out there that it literally gets you out of your own way, gets you out of your own fears, gets you out of your own head to allow you to do that. So when I coach, it's just a small part of that, right? Now there's a tremendous background in it that you really have to, to do to truly get somebody out of their own way. But having that observer will get you there a little bit, bit by bit. And that's really what the end of the conversation is with, with coaching. Um, yeah. There. yeah. Well, I, I I don't know anything about Tony Robbins. Um, I I watched a couple of documentaries um, and some TED talks. Well, I I I I actually didn't know the guy until a couple of months ago, and um, it's hard for me just looking into it. He seems to be. How do I say that? That's that's my gut feeling seeing it, but I have too little information to to really form form an opinion. I feel like he he takes something that he learned somewhere else, he changes it slightly and then presents you with a framework, but he doesn't tell you his sources. But well, maybe so, he does, but I didn't see enough of it. No. So, for, so first of all, you're hundred percent right. Right. Tony is, uh, has a hundred X more success than any other person in that space because he's an amazing marketer. And, and by the way, you talk about the last 30 years of innovation in technology, somebody takes somebody else's idea, tweaks it, puts their label on it, blows it up, does it right. And then, and then the next Facebook, you know, yeah. the history um, of Silicon Valley. That's what you just right. described. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it's not like where the stories come from, right? you know, on Insta, it says everybody's copying everybody else. Gates didn't invent DOS. He bought it. Right. So, and everybody, so uh, yeah, so that's why Tony's successful now, but that's, 
So take away Tony from it and look at the core of his work and look at what he's implementing and look at the change. And uh, do I think he has the best content and the best delivery out there? No, but he's touching the most amount of lives, which I think is beautiful. Um, there's other, but my particular access is something called landmarkworldwide.com. Uh, and it's la- called landmark education and they were very profound. They're one of the, uh, the originals on the block. Um, and their creator Warner Earhart was kind of the source of a lot of things, but he still sourced it from, uh, a, a, you know, whether it's PhD neuro- neuroscientists and Heidegger uh, and, and things of that nature to really look at what you're doing and how you're doing it and, and, and take away the conversations that we're having with ourselves and just get to the root of things, um, which makes life yeah. a lot simpler. Does it have some religious undertones? I always feel like he, he strikes me as a as a he could he could be as easily in a Mormon church that he is a, a coach, right? Is that a is there a real relationship or is it accidental? No, it's it, it, it it's coincidental in the sense that when I think you break down religions to their core, there's a few different things, and one of them, um, you know, I know Judaism the best, and. Uh, There's the religious and the traditions and the things that we've gone through over the course of time. But at the end of the day, it's about giving people rules to live by, to give them the, to empower them to have a more successful, more purpose-driven life, to also make life simpler so they could focus on what matters and alleviate their anxieties. Um, then there's the whole uh, higher power component But there's a tremendous amount of components in religion that are about the about people and easing their anxieties and their fears, right? Yeah. And that side of the things, there is overlap. There is no spirituality or religion in any of these um, programs, but there is that overlap of how do you make life simple? How do you be happier? How do you alleviate anxiety, right? Yeah. Um, but well, for a me, lot of people... Yeah, a lot of people say this about um, what did the, the all the hardcore liberal um, policies. They're kind of they're feeding into the same instinct, right? So you have an you have a religious instinct that everybody needs, and as you say, I mean, we need a software upgrade, right? That's I think what the Old Testament really gave us. It's a software upgrade to live like life better, and there's a lot of rules, but these rules are have stood the test of time because otherwise, you know, the Old Testament wouldn't be around, and there wouldn't be a whole new religion built on this or two of them. And uh, so that's that's one thing. I mean, we, we need. There's always things that we don't know. So and we will. We have to call them something. We can call them. We don't know. But if we call them God, the good part is, and we think this is a benevolent God. Oh, that will take away our anxiety, as you say, right? So we this and this keeps on going. This will will never end. I mean, even if we build our own universe, we still will not know things, and we have to attribute it to something that doesn't make us anxious because that will reduce our productivity. So I'm fully with you. Um, And, and a lot of people say this about this, this religious instinct, keep, it, it stands and it, it's always there. People have it and they're born with it and they will sooner or later gravitate towards it. That's what I felt when I, when I saw Tony Robbins. He kind of, he, he, he responds to this religious instinct. Help me make more sense of the world so I can see the abstract rules and then I can incorporate them into my life. That's kind of how it appeared to me. But that's, again, I'm, I'm just an observer. I, I don't know the details. No, it's not a bad thing. But, but, but do you think it's better than religion? I think everybody needs their access. I think not having access to 
some sort of framework. Um, I, I, I know a lot of people that figure it out by themselves. Again, it comes down to where I got my de- definition of wisdom was like, I would not be uh, the, the smiling, jovial person that you see today without doing a lot of this work with Landmark, right? I wouldn't have been able to sell my last company <clears throat> without doing it. I wouldn't have been able to, you know, get out of my own way. I mean, I used to walk into every conversation being an arrogant prick because I had something to prove that I didn't think I was smart enough. I didn't think I was good enough because I didn't read when I was a kid and I thought every, I wasn't smart. So I had to prove to everybody how smart I was. Guess what? I was just an asshole trying to prove that. Right? And until I was able to... definitely like, caught up with the reading, um, but also in personality. <laughs> oh, I got, I got something to prove there. But, uh, I, I, but, but it's how do you let go of those traumas? And we all have traumas from growing up. We all have yeah. things that have happened to us. Yeah. But, but what, what, what that's, you know, I'm not a very religious person, but I always felt like what's great about them they've kind of, they've walked the line a lot between steering you too much on one, one side and also giving you enough freedom. Well, this is debatable how much freedom is in there, right? So that's, that's obviously a big debate, but they've walked that line for a long, long time. And I always feel if, if you have new religions um, or, or things that are just like religions that feed into the same instinct, the risk is always, um, and maybe they overshoot, in guiding you too much, so to speak, right? They give you a rule and then you have to adhere to it. And because that gives you a lot of followers, it makes it easier to market. But it also kind of gets rid of your, your, your own personality, your own freedom. I think this is what happened to Christianity, for instance, right? It started off as something that's more free, more open, and then it became the Catholic Church and became extremely, extremely difficult to, to navigate for a lot of people. And then, then man got involved. Not woman, but man, right? It was pure. And then, you know, it's man's creation over the last yeah. 2020 years, right? Um, versus well, what you yeah. go, go ahead. No, it, 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 it's, just, it's just man's creation. It, it, yeah. Now, at its purest and roots, it was still man's creation, but there's, but over a lot, and I'm going to probably offend people, but, um, you know, there, there's just humans making decisions and updating it for, the, for this world that we live in. As opposed to the Old Testament, is that what you're saying? Or I'm not saying the Old Testament. It's it's not opposed. Yeah, I guess as opposed to the Old Testament, it's changed because yeah. every you know every twenty thirty years, a new uh, a new human has put their touch, their opinion on it for better or for worse. And you know, you, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the device the divisiveness within the the whole Catholic lineage that I, I still don't understand, you know, and yeah. Lutheranism and Protestantism, how many wars have been fought over the, the, the smallest difference and change of man's creation? Yeah. Well, because it helps us so much to define ourselves, right? And if you break it down, whenever you break down a religious tone, and I, I know Judaism has this too, and but it has has been able to kind of catch some of the, the outliers over time. It's It's so... Well, I was making that in another podcast, this comparison, and maybe you think the same. Entrepreneurs, cult leaders, and priests, the philosophers too, they're all kind of looking, you're looking at the same personality profile. They're all kind of looking to, to put their lens of reality onto the world. And when you, when you think of religion, you know, it's this big tool where you can influence people. It's kind of a marketing tool to market your own ideas, to market your own social standing. And then obviously if you break off from a, from a lineage, create another one, 
all you want to do is, is 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 defend this, right? If someone comes in, then your whole the whole work is kind of gone. It's kind of your startup, right? Someone steals your idea, and then you you you're toast. You, you don't the idea exists, but you as a as someone who who has taken advantage of this, that person that benefit is gone. Yeah, no, you're you're not right. I think for some of these outsized, uh, you know. Startup founders, they have this, I think what you're describing is a reality distortion field, right? Whether it's Travis at Uber or Adam at WeWork, they distorted reality. Anybody who was around them, they like made them believe in in their dreams. And uh, there is that that thread, that that, that gift uh, that that, that they have that I'm very confused if if that's a gift that I want Um, because it's it's a superpower. And you can wield it for good yeah. or wield it for evil. Yeah, absolutely. But but often <laughs> you don't know. Um, I, I find if it's good or bad, right? I always say this about entrepreneurs. We all start out to make the world a better place. But then Zuckerberg one day woke up and said, oh, man, this didn't turn out the way I wanted because I never thought about these things. I, I don't know if everybody has uh, such good intentions. I think you've been drinking the Kool-Aid in the Valley for too long. I think, no, I think they do. Well, give me a bunch of examples where people start out and do something and they really want their, everyone's lives are miserable, but they just want to make money. I mean, there's even, even drug lords, you know, think about Pablo Escobar. Everybody's in it for the, like, you know, a lot of people are in it for the money. Not everybody's in it. There's plenty of people that are in it for the aspirational making difference, but at the core of it, people are out to make a buck. I think if people, well, yes. you yes, know, and when, they just, and when people get too focused on just making a buck, nothing else matters. When they don't have a mission that's, actually something that they truly believe in and they have started purpose-driven co- and they don't start a purpose-driven company. My last company, we, we sold alcohol. I had a brilliant idea that alcohol should be delivered, right? And we were the first person people to execute on it. And it was a great thesis. Friggin' Drizzly just sold for 1.1 billion. I did fail to execute as well as them. Okay. You know, they had, they, I didn't know what size. You maybe were a little early, I guess. You maybe were a little early. That's a relatively new market to explode. Right. But, you know, there wasn't a thesis of making an impact. It was going to make a buck. They didn't have it. They didn't want to make a better world. They wanted to make a buck. No, I agree with you. But, the you know, that's that's the beauty of it, of Adam Smith. Just making, and there's a lot of exceptions to it. But in general, when we come up with something that a new service or product that we offer, um, it's not that we want to change the world for the better necessarily. We want to make money for ourselves, 100%. Um, but in turn, because we do something useful that is cheaper, better, different, and people buy from us voluntarily, we make the world a better place. Now, it doesn't always work out that way, right? There's a lot of exceptions. But I'd say 99% of innovation works that way. It's accidental. People have a... It's, they don't want to be do-gooders, right? I mean, maybe they want to, but they actually want to make money, and that does the good. That's what I'm trying to refer to, not people's, you know, altruistic motivation. Um, maybe, maybe some people have that. I, I, maybe. I mean, I, 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 come, I, come to, I come to bear with a very altruistic uh, motivation, and, um, and I, I, I want to bring everything to bear, and one of the things... Every company I start, I want to have a purpose. I want to have a purpose that actually makes a difference to other people. Uh, and it's, by the way, it's a selfish reason because if I'm perfect, one of the things that motivates me is making an impact in other people's lives. Right? And one of the yeah. things that fulfills me is making an impact in other people's lives. If I don't come with a purpose, I will burn out. I will not be motivated. Give me a year and I, w- I won't want to do it. 
So it's a selfish medita- me- me- uh, reason for doing it, but it's uh, the intention that I've also created that, you know, I, I want to have an impact in people's lives and I want that to be the core thing. And, you know, when I, when I sold the last company, I was like, well, what do I want to do next? And I, I knew I wanted to have a purpose. And I'm like, well, maybe I'll be, maybe I'll start a, an NGO and I'll, I'll do it that way. And I'm like, no, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I, I enjoy making money, but I, 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 I really, what, what wakes me up and what gives me fuel in my tank and what fulfills me is making that difference for people. I think you're absolutely right. And what, what I think, I always look at people who make outlandish donations and gifts and I feel like, whoa, they really have a really terrible conscience. So they give so much money because their, their theory in their mind is, okay, I'm doing something dirty, Pablo Escobar, um, and I'm killing a lot of people, maybe not directly, but indirectly. Um, so I giving ever, give a lot of money away, so it kind of cleans my soul. And I'm, I'm just running this startup but the, or this company, and then I use all this money to make the world a better place. I think this is, I'm actually, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think that's great if people do that, if they, they, they stick their whole money to, to good cause. But the good cause for me is entrepreneurship itself, because that actually is the weapon to wield. And, and, that's, and that's, a, that's a fair point. I mean, look what Gates has been doing for the last 10 years, right? Um, and, and really wielding his knowledge, know-how, and trying to make the, the impact in that world and change the world to make it a better place and either through entrepreneurship. So that thesis is absolutely 100% right. I think a, a powerful thesis that I try and live by and that have, that have been playing out for the last six years, it's worked for me really well. And <clears throat> there's a concept that we live our lives in, it, it, which is why people donate at the end of their life, is... We're going to go after the things that we want to go after. We're going to have those things that we want to have. We're then going to do all those things that we've always wanted to do in our lives. And then finally, at some point, when we make all this money, we're going to finally be that person that gives back. We're going to finally be that person that makes a difference. And we're going to finally be the person we've always wanted to be. And the thing that made my life so much easier was being that person today, being who you truly want to be and know you are, and doing those things now. And, you know, and, and, and giving that money away now or whatever that is for you, right? And doing those things that you want to do and not waiting for someday, one day to do those things. And then eventually you'll have those things that you want. But I think doing in that order gives you a lot more power, freedom, self-expression, fun, and joy, um, which is something I want in my life. And you're just a better human for before. Oh, I, I'm, I'm with you. This is the philosophy to follow. And I think this is... When it's obviously just one reading, but that would be my reading of the Old Testament. You know, be the best person you can anywhere you are in life. And the, in Christianity, it was was really interesting. They had they they had a lot of warlords in the sixth, seventh, eighth century. Um, from what we know, they had priests traveling with them. And the idea was is that they kill a lot of people. They they ravage the countryside. And then the second, if they actually injured, they have a couple of seconds. They can pledge allegiance to Jesus, um, and they go to heaven. Right. So. <laughs> That, that was clever, so to speak, right? Clever as an entrepreneur, but obviously something is really wrong with that. Well, have you run in, I've ran into that in the real world these days. I, I no ran way. into some shady business people somewhere in the world, and they had their own religious, I won't say what religion, their own religious guru, who is a member of the, that, that religious sect that they were part of, and there was a private, uh, it was their private guru, it was a private priest, rabbi, whoever, whatever title you want to put on it. That was theirs. And they, they had him on call and they had him on staff. 
because yeah. they were making such shit decisions. I remember going to my business partner, I'm like, do we really want to do business with somebody who has to have their own private religious guru to clear the conscious daily? Like, nope. <laughs> Not worth it. That's a red flag. That's certainly a red flag. But it's you know, there's so many ways to game the system. I guess that's that's one of the the most um, crazy ways I've seen um, do it in that way, and it's not good for everyone. So if you find a scalable system that that works for the individual but also society, I think that's the holy grail. And we only have a very few of those, you know. And I think this is religion is overlooked as a as a as a system that that. But you know, Adam Smith is the other one who who described that. But I think the system is much older than this. There's very few things that are so finely balanced that they can actually achieve that. And I think a startup is like that too, right? It's an incarnation of this forward-looking, positive belief, and you you incorporate it with a few people, just yourself, and then a bunch of other people, and then the idea grows, and everyone's better off unless you know you, you do something really dirty. But in general, I think 99% of startups, it's 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 all good. What comes out of it, even Facebook, as 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 nasty as I think is Facebook, they they've there's a lot of good that they've done. Maybe I convince you one day. Maybe I'll convince you. Uh, no, I mean, I, 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 there's a lot of good. There's definitely some good that they've done. I think uh, I think they they start uh, the amount that we're addicted to our phones these days, and the the fact that their single premise is to make sure that you spend as much time on their platform as possible, and that's their number one KPI. They need to figure out how to balance that. That because that's just I think that I think that's the root of a lot of evil right now is that we're our phone addictions and uh, I don't know. That's a whole other subject. That uh, we have to get to it next time. I have a, a lot, a lot that I thought about that too. But we have to get it. We have to get to that next time. Um, thanks for doing this, Rob. That was awesome. Thanks for for helping with all these questions. I know we went all over the place. <laughs> we definitely went all over the place, but it was, I felt like uh, we were just in your backyard shooting the shit. So uh, thanks for time and thanks for having I enjoyed it tremendously. Yeah. All, all right, right Rob. Talk, talk soon. soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, I know.